Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, gas prices are about to get worse in the coming weeks. Why is this happening? The city of Hamilton is looking to see what Hamiltonians want to see happen with Sam Lawrence Park. And also, Randy Hillier made his return to Queen's Park as an independent and is now in talks with the Integrity Commissioner about alleged illegal and unregistered lobbying. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I got to talk to you. We, we mentioned this a couple of times just in passing, but it's, uh, it's, it's getting to the point right now where we've got to get some clarity on this. Frustrated by rising gas prices, aren't you? Well, I certainly am. Uh, well, the prices we're seeing right now may get worse before they get better. Uh, that's got to do with the time of year. It's got to do with the uh, pending tax that's coming in. And I know it's a big mess. So let's bring our friend Dan McTagan. Of course, uh, he was a former Liberal MP and is now a Consumer Affairs critic when he was in government. He's now an analyst, of course, with GasBuddy.com. Dan, I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks for taking some time for us today. And try to, what, what is going on at the pumps? Well, what's happened, uh, we got a bit of a false sense of uh, great pricing uh, from November until roughly the last week of February. We saw prices uh, tumble as a result, at least on uh, the oil front. You know, during at Christmas time, uh, oil is trading for forty-two bucks a barrel. Just a month and a half before, it was trading for about seventy-five. So much of this, by the way, had to do with uh, our friend of the south, Donald Trump, who said uh, to everybody, "Produce a lot more oil because I'm going to seal off Iranian oil. I'm going to shut them down. I'm going to sanction them." Yeah, uh, he did impose the sanctions and uh, gave uh, a huge mess of exemptions to everybody. That really ticked off uh, OPEC and the Russians because they had basically flooded the market with oil, and uh, this may have served. Uh, you know, someone's interest, at least Trump's interest in flooding the market and bringing prices down. But it also really caused, uh, uh, you know, a real sense uh, that uh, maybe it's time to uh, cut back on production. And OPEC has done that, uh, as has Canada, because we were only getting 15 bucks for our oil. We've decided to cut back 300,000 barrels a day. Venezuela is almost sealed off, no longer producing much oil uh, because of the economic collapse there. Mexico's got the same problem. So what you're seeing here has been a rapid rise in the price of oil and gasoline, probably the, on, and that's on international markets, the highest I've seen in 17 for the first quarter, and that's why we've gone from seeing prices of 93 cents a liter all the way back up to $1.21 today. So this is international pressure then? Very much so, and it has to do with the dynamic of uh, uh, supply and demand. Uh, there's a, a tightening, uh, recognized tightening of global supplies of crude. Uh, and the crude that the U.S., for instance, which continues to increase its output, is producing, isn't uh, something that most American refineries can use alone. It's too light. Uh, they need a uh, combination of heavier and light in order to make uh, fuel and diesel products. Uh, diesel prices, of course, are going to the roof as well. That to do with the fact that uh, most maritime vessels globally are going to low sulfur diesel from the current heavy bunker oil as of January 1st, 2020. So, a lot of moving parts here, and uh, not going to get better for motorists here in Ontario. Of course, we've seen, uh, you know, our own refineries back in February di- deeply discounting gasoline. They were producing so much of it they had to drop the price to levels that were below even the international markets. And I'd never seen that for twenty more or more years. I've been doing this, so a good uh, thing has come to the end. And uh, now, of course, you have the switch over from winter to summer gasoline in about two weeks, and on Monday, April Fool's Day. Uh, your federal government is uh, giving you a five cent kick in the pants. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a second, but let me go back to the to the the seasonal fuel from going from winter to summer. Talk a little bit about that and the impact that has. Yeah, look, for the past forty thirty five years, we've had a. 
standard in Canada. It's also a standard in the United States. As weather warms up, uh, gasoline becomes more volatile, and you want to make sure that you have additives and uh, the blend of your gasoline is such that it doesn't evaporate. So to do that, refineries have to acquire and mix new, more expensive products into their uh, into their line of production. Uh, that also requires some maintenance, uh, slow you know part shutdowns of uh, the refineries, which happens twice a year. And usually they do it in a season where the heavy where there isn't heavy uh, you know it's not the heavy driving season. Uh, so we see a little bit of a cutback in production, but we also see then a move and a shift to these higher uh, priced uh, summer RVPs, what they call them, reed vapor pressure. But it's basically cleaner, uh, more resistant gasoline to higher temperatures. During the winter, you want to make sure that your vehicle ignites quickly. And so they uh, introduce things like butane, which is a much cheaper product than alkylates. And that's why we see about a five cent difference between winter and summer gasoline. In Canada, the mandate for summer gasoline starts on, and all gasoline stations must have by April 15th, fuel in their lines, uh, dispense at a summer grade, which ends, of course, on September the 15th. And then, of course, from that point to the following April, you have uh, winter blends. All right, so let's let's talk about April 1st then. And it couldn't be a more fitting day, I guess, to do this. Uh, but that's essentially when uh, the carbon pricing comes in, right? Well, that's it. Uh, gasoline goes up... Uh, it uh, yeah, means that we'd be seeing a dollar twenty six point nine at the high end. Uh, it also means that gas is going to continue to move up during the summer um, because, of course, other other factors which I've just mentioned, which include uh, uh, summer blends as well as huge demand that we normally see that could spike another ten cents. I wouldn't be surprised to see it buck thirty five uh, starting mid April all the way till next September. And we were that high a couple of years ago, were we not? Well, we were, uh, but oil was also trading yeah. uh, last summer in that uh, range of about seventy-five dollars a barrel, not sixty. So, if oil goes back to seventy-five, um, the other factor here that a lot of people don't consider is the Canadian dollar. It's very weak; it's not responding, and there's many reasons why it's not up. But the biggest is that we're not selling any oil to the rest of the world at reasonable prices, uh, and we don't have the capacity to sell more. So, blocking pipelines costs you and I an extra fourteen cents a liter. And that's just gasoline. Every single commodity that you can think of right now in your house or that you use at work or uh, for leisure is priced in U.S. dollars. So anybody who thinks it's cute and trendy and funny to have, you know, a weak Canadian dollar only has to look at the fact it's one of the reasons Canadians feel so impoverished. Well, now we know. It doesn't make it feel any better, but now we know. Uh, Dan, it's a busy day. Thanks so much for taking time. Really appreciate it today. Thanks for having me here. Cheers. Take care. Dan McTeague, of course, uh, from uh, GasBuddy.com. Well, I want to bring Ian Lee in, of course, uh, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University and, and try to get some understanding about how these gas prices are going to have an impact on us. Ian, thanks so much for uh, taking the time for us today. Are we with you? Oh, I guess I just lost Ian. Well, we'll try to reconnect him with him in just a couple of seconds. But Dan McTeague just touched on something I think that's very, very germane to this discussion. Obviously, we get upset when we see the price at the pump, and we get upset when we see how much it costs to fill the gas tank. But there are economic implications to this that uh, that we are going to have to face. And I, uh, one of those, of course, is the fact that obviously when in the fuel prices go up, the cost of delivering goods to market goes up, and that usually means the cost of those goods goes up. Uh, it's a, a vicious cycle. I get that, but it's one of these things that that is going to have an impact on us. And you know, summertime we do more traveling. Let's face it; you know, that's when most people seem to take some holiday time anyway. 
And, uh, you know, you hop in the car, you want to go up to the cottage, you want to go traveling, you want to see Canada. That's all great, and it's it's a fabulous way to spend some time. Problem you've got with that is it's going to cost an awful lot more to do that. I think we got Ian back again. Ian, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing just fine, thanks. Listen, let me, we're just talking with Dan McTagg from GasBuddy.com about uh, yeah. the price of gas going up. And is, is this the new normal now? I think so, but I want to, and I know it's really frustrating to listen to people say on the one hand this and the one hand that, but there are contradictory trends going on out there. Let me do the, the big picture, and Please I do, yeah. caught the tail end of what Dan was saying, and, and I completely agree. I mean, people don't realize, a lot of people don't realize, uh, oil is priced around the world in every last country in U.S. dollars. So what that means is when the currency of the local country goes down, the price of oil is going up. The Canadian dollar is weak these days for a whole bunch of reasons. We won't get into that, but it's, 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 it's trending down, and that drives the price up of oil because it's priced in U.S. dollars. In plain English, we have to pay more Canadian dollars to buy the same amount of oil if the, dollar, the Canadian dollar goes down, even if the oil price doesn't change internationally. Now, he already covered that, so let me go on to a couple of other big-picture factors. Um, the U.S. government, as we know, has reimposed sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, two very, very large producers. I believe Venezuela once was the largest producer, no longer, and Iran was in the top five. So these aren't trivial countries. And then, of course, the OPEC uh, production cuts, OPEC uh, driven by the, the leader of OPEC, Saudi Arabia, is, uh, wants to see oil prices up uh, because they think it's, it's underpriced. And so they're trying to get the OPEC countries to agree on production cuts to create less supply to drive up the price of oil. So, you know, it, it could conceivably, and there are forecasts out there right now as I speak, that are saying oil could go up to $80 a barrel. That's, of course, U.S. dollars a barrel. So that's obviously the, the, the economic picture it's going to have uh, from the international standpoint. Uh, what do they do yeah. summertime, you know, production-wise, especially with the refineries and around here? Uh, if, if the price keeps going up like this, and obviously they don't like to see the price go down the way it did before, down to 91, uh, do they cut back on production? Yeah. Um, once the oil's been pumped... You've got a, you know, and I'm talking the the uh, pumped out of the the, the you know the uh, the uh, wells, um, the 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 uh, producers of oil ship it, sell it to the refineries, and the refineries once upon a time. If you go back, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, um, the integrated oil companies, as they were called, the Exxons and the, and the BPs, were completely vertically integrated. And that's my strategy talk that I teach in my classes for saying that they owned oil wells upstream, they owned refineries midstream, and they owned gas stations downstream. However, they mostly, the big oil, the, the mega oil companies have got out of refineries mostly, and they've certainly got out of gas stations. So what I'm saying is that they're selling. Once they pump that oil, they've got to sell it. And, of course, the refineries want to sell it, too, because sitting around on, on inventory is very costly. So um, I think what will happen is, is that um, they will try and push it through, push price increases through. But... Um, I, I, you know, it's a very competitive market. I know there's lots of people in Canada that think there's a conspiracy out there, but this has been studied, believe me, endlessly. And uh, and and the reason that oil, just very quickly, uh, Bill, the reason that gas prices go up in the summer, it's good old-fashioned 
supply and demand. We drive our cars a lot more in the summer because we love to drive our cars and take road trips. I'm one of them. And our consumption of gasoline in Canada and the United States goes up very, uh, very markedly, very measurably. And, and so supply and demand, you know, you can charge more when, when the demand is higher. All right. If this is the new normal and we're going to have to get used to having prices up in this range, uh, what does that do to consumer prices? I mean, if it costs more to get goods to market because uh, the fuel's gone up, I, I, that's got to hit us eventually, doesn't it? Well, yes, because it's not just, uh, and this is where I, I have, I take issue with the, those people who are so cavalier about putting a carbon tax on, saying, ah, oh, you know, it's just a little detail, you know, it's just going to cause you to change your, your driving habits a little bit. The price of energy, and I mean by energy, oil and gas, which supplies 80% of all the energy in Canada, is embedded throughout the entire economy, throughout all the value chains of all the industries. All the farmers use uh, gasoline or diesel to far- run their farms, to, to, to drive their tractors, to heat the buildings. They're using natural gas. Uh, the trucking companies that bring the food to market, that bring the manufactured goods from the ports to the Walmarts and to all the other retail stores are using gasoline or diesel. In other words, it's, it's an absolutely critical essential fuel and the and the idea that you know we can sort of bypass that the impact of this is just simply nonsense it is essential to our to everything to to not only heating our universities and hospitals and office buildings and schools in the winter months when it goes to minus 25 as we all know from this very brutal winter we've just experienced but it also is absolutely essential for the totality of the transportation system across canada Everybody uses it in the transportation. The food distributors use it. People that sell books distribute. You know, uh, every imaginable product that you buy in any store that you enter, that any of your listeners goes into, those products got there on a truck. And that truck is using gasoline or diesel. And so when the price goes up, it, it feeds through to everything that we buy. And it costs us more to buy the same amount of product. This is an essential service, an essential product. It's not, as people seem to suggest, some kind of a luxury or discretionary good that, oh, well, you know, we put a carbon tax on and you just, you know, you just don't use it as much. It isn't that simple. You don't stop heating your house in the wintertime at minus 25 and say, I'm not going to heat my house because, you know, the price has gone up because of taxes or because of market prices. It just doesn't work. Our dem- Pardon me, Bill, but I'm going to use some academic talk. Sure. Our price for energy is mostly inelastic. And that's the technical term for saying when the price goes up, we keep on consuming it at the higher price because you don't have a choice. You know, and most people, they say, well, you know, just take the bus. Well, most buses don't take us where we want to go. You know, in the middle of the winter, you take your kids uh, one part of the burbs over to another part of the burbs to an indoor soccer practice, or it could be hockey, or it could be football, it could be any sport. And the, the transit systems tend to run from the outskirts of the city, the burbs, into the downtown. They don't run across the burbs. So guess what? We all drive our car. I do too, whenever I go to the grocery store. So my point being that, our demand for energy, for oil and gas, to heat our house, to drive our car, is inelastic, meaning we don't have the discretion or the choice. We can't say, I'm going to stop heating my house or stop going to the grocery store to buy groceries. 
And so that's why I've been a skeptic of carbon uh, taxes, not because I don't understand the uh, logic of, you know, put the price up and you, generally speaking, will consume less of it. And that's true with many goods in many markets. But I argue it's not true in markets where our demand is inelastic because we don't have a choice. We're not going to stop heating our house. If they put on a carbon tax tomorrow morning of $100 a, um, you know, a ton, I'm not going to stop heating my house of course in not. January at minus 25. My pipes would freeze and it would cost thousands and thousands of dollars to fix my house. So what I do is I grit my teeth, I bite my tongue, I get angry, and I pay the increased price. So it doesn't change my behavior. It just takes more money out of my pocket to pass to the government to support their 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 their, their agenda and and it doesn't cause me to change my behavior yes in the longer run i've already done it like many canadians insulate the house oh, yeah. you know put better windows in better doors but we've i've been I've owned a house for 35 years. Every weekend, almost, I'm out at Home Depot or Rona or Lowe's. The parking lots have been jammed all my life. We've been all retrofitting our houses. So the idea that, you know, we're not going to do anything, we can do whatever we can, but we're still going to heat our house and we're still going to drive our car because we're still the second coldest country in the entire world after Russia. Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business. Uh, thanks for uh, sending it out for us, Ian. Really appreciate it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, some parks here, and, and maybe one of the most iconic parks in this city, and, and we have many of them, is Sam Lawrence Park, and that, of course, is the one that's right at the top of the Jolly Cut. Uh, the city wants opinions now on what to do with the park. John Paul Danko is the counselor for Ward 8, uh, which is, of course, right uh, where that particular park is. He joins us to talk about how this is going to happen. John Paul, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on again, Bill. Good morning. Good morning. Listen, this is this is a, a lovely park. As, as I think you mentioned in your comments the other day, and I can remember from from my time when I was on council, and besides, I used to live in the neighborhood not too many years ago. Uh, anybody that wants to impress anybody about how beautiful Hamilton is, the first stop is Sam Lawrence Park. I mean, not just because the park itself is beautiful, but the vista that you can see on a beautiful day like today. You can see right over the Toronto skyline. You can see the city from east to west all over the place. It's just a magnificent uh, uh, vista, really, for this place. Absolutely, and and I see that Sam Lawrence Park as being almost uh, an ambassador for our city. Um, when you take a walk through there, you see people from all over the world all the time, and it's as you as you said in your in your opening comment there. Yeah, it's it's one of the top destinations where anybody that's trying to showcase Hamilton that wants to show off what our city has to offer, um, they take them to Sam Lawrence Park. And uh, like I said, it's 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 an ambassador to our city. And interestingly, I just the other day I had a conversation with Patrick Dean, the president of of uh, McMaster University, and we were talking about uh, re- grad retention and how we make sure that people want to stay and live and play in Hamilton, and our public spaces is a big part of that. So it is it is hugely important for our, the city of Hamilton, and, and especially for the mountain. This is this is the crown jewel of the mountain. i got to tell you a quick story. I, I, my dear friend Roy Green, uh, when he was being recruited to come here, he was living in Montreal at the time, and Tom Darling, that owned uh, CHML, owned the radio station at the time, took him out for lunch and uh, uh, and brought him, uh, took him up to Sam Lawrence Park, and uh, just said, "Look at this is a, how magnificent this city is." And Roy said, "He says, you know what? When you look at it from that standpoint, I think it was the first time he'd been to Hamilton." Uh, and he just said, "Yeah, I'm going to live here," and and did, of course. And it's it's that impressive when you see that vista and you see the whole city laid out. It's maybe one of the few places in town where you can see just about everything, isn't isn't it? 
Yeah, and it's really interesting. I think if you've grown up in Hamilton, you might not take it, uh, you, you take it for granted a little bit. Uh, I mean, uh, growing up here, you don't really appreciate maybe as much as the people from out of town when you, you have an actual elevated platform where you can see the whole city laid out. Yeah, but and, that, uh, that happens in other cities too, doesn't it? I mean, I know people that live in Niagara Falls and say, yeah, yeah, there's a waterfall over there, so what? Uh, <laughs> and, and we tend to do the same thing too. We have this beautiful natural vista here and we take it for mm-hmm. granted. To a certain extent, I think uh, a lot of the people in the neighborhood are, are also very passionate about uh, about that park, and I think that's what we heard at the meeting yesterday. Uh, the the people that use the park on a daily basis um, are also really really um, interested in in the future there and what we come up with as uh, refreshment options for the park. So it's it's a mix and. That's part of the balance that we're looking for when we go through this uh, revisioning exercise and come up with a master plan is balancing the uses of how it's used currently and how we see it being used in the future. But uh, absolutely, everybody that goes there, it uh, it takes your breath away. It's, it's a fantastic venue for... Uh, you know, for really showcasing what the city has to offer. Well, as a guy that grew up on the mountain, and I, I remember some of the incarnations of this, because it has gone through some changes over the years. There used to be a roadway, actually, that just came up to the top of it from one of the uh, the mountain access routes. Uh, that's long since gone, although you can still walk down that path. Uh, it's a two-tier thing. There's really two parks there, right? When you think about it, John Paul, there's the one where the, the parking is, of course, on, on the west side of the Jolly Cut. But on the east side, something altogether different uh, and that uh, maybe not too many people find out unless you actually live in the neighborhood and get out of your car and walk around. Uh, talk to us about why all of a sudden, well, I shouldn't say all of a sudden, because this is a natural progression. Uh, the city wants to do something about this. Are you, are you considering reworking the whole park or, or just tweaking it? What's, what's, what's on your mind at this stage? So at this point, we're, we're going into a design master plan for the park. And what that is is to look at what the existing uses are, and also, like I said, what we envision it to be used in the future, how we envision it to be used in the future. And I think if you've been there recently, I think most people would agree that the the park features that are there are a little bit tired, a little bit worn out, and, and they're due to be upgraded and and and, and re, redone. So as part of the, the different segments of the park, that's one of the big challenges there. Like, it's not often that you have this beautiful green space with a major arterial road snaking its way down through the middle. And the intersection at uh, Concession and Upper Wellington in particular is a bit of a challenge. Just beha- because of how it's configured, it splits the park in two. And it's 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 difficult and it's a bit of a challenge to figure out how we can um, incorporate you know, pedestrian access from one side to the park and also make sure that the park is an inviting space for people and having those those roadways there, it, it, may, it does make that a bit of a challenge. But I also see it as an opportunity because having the Jolly Cut go through there, it's on such a well-traveled route. Um, it's something that people go by on a regular basis and it also gives us a bit of an opportunity to showcase some of the uh, the strata of, of the actual escarpment and the rock, and all that is, is a core feature of what makes Hamilton Hamilton. So there's there's certainly some challenges, but so many great opportunities as well. Yeah, it's not just the Jolly Cut itself, of course. It's that little roundabout uh, for people that want to go off to Concession Street and make a left-hand turn. Uh, so it really cuts it off into three. They got that little no-man's line between the Jolly Cut and that, that little side thing there. 
So uh, it, it's, it is there, and it does have its challenges. But like you say, if you look at that as, as opportunities as opposed to, you know, things that are, are going to be drawbacks to this whole thing, uh, you've got a blank canvas here. There's a lot of stuff we can do. And I know you've talked about some of the things that are happening in other parks, uh, perhaps even the introduction of things like recreational activities there, an ice rink or something of that nature, not unlike what you did down, uh, of course, down by the Williams Coffee Pub. Uh, is, is everything on the table right now? Right now, yes. Uh, so it's, it's really we're brainstorming and we're trying to find out from the community and from the people that use the park on a daily basis and also from tourists and people that visit from out of town um, what they want to see in the park. So some of the themes that I kind of picked up on just from last night where we had a really fantastic public meeting with standing room only, I think 50 to 75 uh, people from the community were out at the uh, Concession Street Library and uh, there's there's a little bit of trepidation about change for the for the park. You know, people are happy with how it is. They they like walking their dogs there. They like taking their friends out for a stroll with coffee. Um, and then there's there is quite a bit of support for passive uh, activities. So walking, um, not so much for big stuff. <laughs> we'll put it that way. Uh, so, but that's, that's what we're looking for from the community. That's exactly what the point of the exercise is, is to find out how people want to use that, it, that space. And some, uh, some, I think, uh, we'll call them improvements might not be appropriate. And that's what we want to hear from the public. <clears throat> if there's something that, you know, we're talking about that we say might think is a great idea, but the public is, you know, people that live there that use the park are like, holy cow, no, we don't want that. That's exactly the kind of feedback that we want to hear because at the end of this process, we want to be able to come up with a plan that is exceptional and it's something that everybody in the community and in the city can be very proud of and that gets behind and supports. Well, you mentioned about passive use of this and, and uh, you know, like you say, dog walking or a number of other different things. And that, that seems it's a mature neighborhood. And I don't think there's any radical change that could actually be undertaken. But I guess the other thing, and I'm sure this came up at your meeting, John Paul, is, is any changes and anything that's going to happen here, is, obviously the city will have a major role in this, and so will the public. Uh, but you also are working with the Niagara Scarpent Commission in situations like this. I mean, there are some things that, that probably just are off that list that, uh, that that maybe you wouldn't even entertain anyway. But, I mean, they do have a say in some of the stuff that goes on there. That's right. And the Niagara Scarpent Commission is an important point. And as well is the uh, the structural integrity of, of the face of the, the escarpment itself. So that's something that we have to take into consideration to make sure that anything that we are proposing is, is actually feasible. And that also goes back to the financial aspect of it as well, because as of right now, any capital improvements, any operating costs that might be um, come out of those capital improvements aren't funded. So whatever plan that we end up coming forward forward with, we, we have to make sure that it's functional, that it's feasible, and that it's also um, can be supported um, at the city level uh, council for, you know, putting some dollars in there for the, for the actual capital and operating costs. Listen, let me ask you, if the years ago there was a debate that went on, even predates my time on council, about perhaps putting a restaurant there. Is that, is that off the table? Have we just said not such a good idea after all? I wouldn't say it's completely off the table. I would say it's probably very challenging um, for some of those reasons that we, we've already talked about, the Niagara Scarment Commission um, requirements being one. 
And also, I'm not sure that that kind of use really fits in with the the overall vision of what the public is expecting for the park. Um, I wouldn't say no completely right now. I mean, there's you know some warrant for having something like that on the brow, um, but I, I, it's kind of up in the air. We'll, we'll put it that way, and, and we want to hear from the public to see what their opinion is on that as well. Yeah, because when I did represent the area, there were some people that were still kind of kicking the tires and say it wouldn't be a bad idea. And I said, well, the biggest challenge, and I, I don't disagree. I, I think it would be wonderful to have a restaurant on, on the escarpment someplace. But I'm not so sure that Sam Lawrence Park is the best location because my, my first concern uh, would be that's blocking public access uh, to, to this beautiful vista that we've just talked about. In other words, if you're not going to have dinner there, you're not going to be able to see uh, that vista. And I'm not so sure that the public would want that sort of restriction. Yeah, and that's kind of my personal view on that as well. Um, but like I said, it, we want to hear from everybody. And if there is a way that that might be able to work, I mean, we're, we'd certainly be open to it. Um, but again, uh, my my personal view or is is kind of that that might not be quite compatible with with how the park is now. And we also have to take into account the history of the space as well, because Sam Lawrence Park itself has has a very deep history with the city. It was designed by um, uh, the landscape architect. His name was uh, Matt Broman, who also did work on Gage Park and Dundurn Castle. Worked with uh, TB McQuestrin in uh, at the Royal Botanical Gardens. So, when we're talking about our future improvements, things like a restaurant, which would be a radical change to the history and the the historic use of the park, we have to take all that into consideration as well and make sure that we. We respect the original landscape design that was there in the first place. The other element to this, too, is is misuse of the property. And I know that's been an ongoing problem for years. And uh, now, now that you're the counselor for the area, I'm sure you've had more than your share of phone calls. Uh, people that park there, people that leave their coffee cups there, uh, people that don't use the the facilities, the garbage facilities that are there. Uh, I, I, that's got to be part of the discussion. I, whether it needs improving, I don't know if you need more facilities, more containers, what the situation might be. Uh, I know that the Tim Hortons down the street got grief from an awful lot of people uh, simply so because your cups are all over the place. And I said, well, they don't walk from the store and throw them down there. Those are the customers that are doing that. So let's talk with them. But uh, there's, there's, I think, some public education about having respect for the facility that has to be part of this discussion. Yeah, and I think that some of the feedback that we did here last night um, from uh, from people that live in the neighborhood is uh, how the park is used, and, and like you said, make sure that the, the space is respected. And it's kind of an interesting question because, in a lot of ways, the, the more people that use the park, it's, it's almost like a group um, policing of each other. So if you're there on your own and it's, it's not busy, you know, the temptation is there maybe just to drop that coffee cup, whereas if it's, you know, bustling with people on a daily basis, um, you're going to think twice. And it also gives the city a little bit more impetus to put in um, trash cans and some of those facilities that uh, can maybe keep the park uh, cleaner and more organized and up to, uh, you know, up to the standards that the community expects. John Paul, what's the time frame for this? What would you like to see happen and when? Well, we're working through a number of uh, community meetings. Uh, our landscape and architectural services staff will be out at uh, Street Fest through the summer on concession. Um, so we're working through the through the master plan. Um, once we start getting feedback from the community and start narrowing in on some of the features that uh, that we were you know specifically proposing, we'll come back to the community, get full more feedback on that. 
So we're going to work through it in the next uh, number of months. And um, uh, I'm not sure exactly the, the end uh, time frame there, the end goal, um, but it's, it's going to take a significant period of time. We want to make sure that we get it right. Is, is it fair to say that this is going to happen? It's just a matter of how and when? Well, the, the master plan is going to happen for sure. Um, whether those uh, improvements that are ultimately proposed get implemented, that's, that'll be a future challenge because, uh, as I said earlier, the, the capital funding hasn't been specifically earmarked for this. So that <clears throat> once we decide what we're going to do, then we have to figure out how we're going to pay for it. So that's the, the master plan is the first step. And then uh, the next step will be figuring out uh, the money aspect. But, so, uh, so there isn't a pot of money that's already been allocated. In other words, you're going you're gonna to work this out and say, here's what we want, here's the price tag for it, and then see what you can do with capital budgeting. Exactly. And it, it might come down to um, area rating money that will be uh, contributed from um, both the Ward 8 account and, and my colleague in, in Ward Esther Paul's in Ward 7. And it's also... Sam Lawrence Park is a city park, so there's a there's a citywide interest in in this space. It's not just Ward Eight, Ward Seven, and Ward Eight. Um, so I, I think there will be some, uh, hopefully, some willingness around council to uh, to invest in this public space. Well, it belongs to all of us, and uh, that's a valid point. I mean, because an awful lot of uh, money from Gage Park or for Gage Park over the last number of years, uh, well spent too, uh, because of that beautiful park as well. So, hopefully, they get the same sort of respect uh, that uh, that they have with the uh, Sam Lawrence project. Uh, it's an exciting time, and it's uh, it's one of the real beauty spots here in the city. And uh, any upgrade that uh, is going to come along, I think it'd be uh, just a, a great, great addition to the community. We'll stay in touch as this unfolds. Thanks so much for the time today, John Paul. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on. Take care. John Paul Danko, of course, the counselor for Ward 8, uh, looking for upgrades to Sam Lawrence Park. And listen, if you've got some ideas, you want to bring up that restaurant thing, because that was kicked around for the longest time, get in touch with your ward counselor, either Counselor Pauls or, or Counselor Danko, and talk to them about it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, swing over to Queens Park. Yesterday saw the return of uh, Maverick uh, MPP Randy Hillier to Queens Park. Now, you may remember that, uh, first of all, he was suspended by uh, Premier Doug Ford for allegedly making comments to uh, in the in the legislature, yada, 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 which uh, some of the people that were there at that time in the public gallery, uh, who were the parents of uh, children with autism, uh, took that as a personal insult. Uh, Hillier denies it was aimed toward them. It was aimed toward uh, an MPP on the, on the other side of the table. But be that as it may, he was suspended. Then, uh, after he had a meeting with the Premier, he got kicked out of the caucus altogether. So he's back, but he's uh, as an independent. But uh, he is not going quietly into his, uh, his uh, backbench independent seat. Uh, he's throwing a few hand grenades before he gets there. John Best, the publisher of the Bay Observer, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Hey, how are you doing today, John? Just great, Bill. Thanks. Good. Listen, you, you've been following politics for a long time, and we all know that especially when you get into party politics, uh, it's uh, do as the boss says, et cetera, et cetera. Hillier has never been like that. Uh, but he's gone through a number of different premiers. Well, not even premiers, but I mean opposition members, I guess, because he was always in opposition until after this last election. Why all of a sudden is there this friction between he and Doug Ford? Well, I, I think it uh, it all stems around Dean French, the uh, Ford's chief of staff. Uh, I was uh, just doing a little research on this, and uh, uh, articles uh, going back into last year, uh, Adam Ranwanski uh, of the Star uh, wrote an article where he described how Dean French was um, so much in charge that uh, 
he uh, that that Ford, uh, by comparison, we you know we always think of Ford as being kind of a blustery, take charge guy, but but instead uh, Ford in the Radwanski column is being portrayed as almost passive in the presence of Dean French. So uh, this this chief of staff um, apparently is wielding all kinds of. Uh, authority uh, apparently um, for instance uh, Hillier I watched his uh, interview yesterday and one of the things that Hillier said that's very unusual is that French uh, chairs the management board meetings of cabinet and typically uh, a man in Dean French's position would be sitting on the side chairs uh, taking notes and here he is actually chairing the meeting uh, openly berating uh, ministers uh, at these meetings, um, just a you know a, a really uh, high level of uh, hands-on. So it looks to me like the issue is Dean French, and whether that uh, you know and the, and the surprising thing to me is is to find that uh, Ford uh, apparently uh, either likes it or uh, but is certainly uh, quiet and and uh, passive uh, is the word that. Uh, Radwanski used, and I've never seen anything like that. John, when somebody gets booted out of caucus, and it does happen from time to time, with I guess it's happened with all the political parties at one time or another, you expect a certain amount of animus and, and, and some ill feelings, etc. But I mean, this little makeshift uh, media conference that he had in his office yesterday, Hillier that is, uh, he started talking about things like a culture of fear and intimidation. I mean, that's really kind of tossing a hand grenade when you walk out the door, isn't it? It is, although when I watched the tape, like, I, I didn't know anything about Hillier. I thought, it, to be honest, I thought he was a bit of a whack job um, uh, reading about him over the years. But, but to be quite honest, in the, in the news conference, his tone was very measured. He spoke quietly. Uh, he paused to think about what he was going to say. Um, it was quite a different uh, thing than I, you know, I expected to see a fiery, you know, rebel kind of a guy. Uh, but, but it wasn't like that. He... He, he was the one that raised the issue about uh, Dean French uh, chairing these uh, management board meetings, which is uh, definitely unheard of. Um, uh, and in some of the news coverage, and, and again, this was all uh, the stories that I'm referring to that sort of describe Dean French were all written long before this Hillier episode. Uh, there, one where he calls all the communication chiefs for each of the ministers into a, a meeting and just screams at them. Uh, for their failure to manage uh, the uh, social media accounts for their ministers properly. And, and apparently, uh, you know, staffers were crying uh, at the meeting. So, you know, I guess you can get away with that for a certain amount of time. But, uh, you know, other examples, uh, picking up the phone to Ontario Power Generation, which is ostensibly, uh, you know, some it's a crown corporation, I guess, so it has some arm's length aspect. It has a a board that doesn't cons- that consists of private citizens calling up them and telling them to get rid of uh, Mr. Valshi, who had a high uh, connected job there because he was appointed uh, by Mr. Ford's predecessor Brown. Um, he's the one that is linked to the uh, uh, again French is linked to this whole business about uh, people not clapping loudly enough or jumping up and down like the North Korean Parliament uh, called uh, you know. Insufficient enthusiasm, I think, is a phrase that <laughs> that was quoted to him. So you know, well, his, we, his we, name was floated in the Ron Tavener situation too. 
very definitely and and the 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 really embarrassing thing about the Tavener thing is uh because it was investigated by the integrity commissioner we we got to look at some behind the scenes correspondence and here's Steve Orsini who is the secretary of cabinet which is theoretically the highest public servant well not theoretically he is the highest public servant in the province and and he's keeping french abreast of how the Tavener appointment is going. And when you look at those letters, those emails that, that Orsini is sending to Dean French, I mean they're they're almost servile. They're 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 embarrassing in the in the way that he's crawling around uh with these messages. I mean it's just a total embarrassment. Um, you know, you always you know, we know that everything is politicized, but you know, there are certain people, uh you know, and the Secretary of Cabinet is always considered to be somebody that is above any kind of political consideration. Here he is almost groveling in his emails to Dean French about how he's trying to get uh, Tavener this job. Not surprisingly, of course, uh, members of the PC caucus, including uh, the House leader, I guess, Todd Smith, are saying, look, this is all BS. None of that really happens. Everything's fine. We're, we're one happy family. Uh, but where there's smoke, there's fire. I mean, when he talks about a culture of fear and intimidation, in uh, in the premier's office and talks about Dean French, John. What is it about Dean French's and the Gerard Butts and others? I mean, they're all cut in the, from the same cloth. Uh, they're all uh, seemingly the bulldog for whoever the premier or the prime minister seems to be. I think you could probably throw Nadja right into that category too, from the former Harper government. Uh, and and invariably, we hear all sorts of horror stories from people, staff members, and 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 backbenchers, etc about the tirades that they go on and how they just rule with an iron fist. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's one of the weaknesses of our parliamentary system is that, uh, you know, you look at the United States and, you know, people are wringing their hands about Trump, but, but the bottom line is uh, through the electoral process, you get um, a legislative branch of government, in this case the, 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 the House of Representatives, is elected, um, as it was last year, and uh, you you start to get some checks and balances in in play, but here um, you know you can be booted from the cabinet, you can be booted from caucus, uh, you can have your there, there's no way, for instance, that Donald Trump would have the ability to um, revoke uh, the nomination of a of a Republican candidate. Now he could put somebody up against them in a primary. But here, of course, the leader, either be the premier or the prime minister, they can absolutely revoke uh, a, a member's ability to run uh, in in the party. So it's uh, you know it's kind of like uh, every four years we get a dictatorship, and uh, unfortunately, uh, and I and I suppose it's it's you know the parliamentary system gets a lot of praise, but here's an example where you have the executive and the legislative branch all tied up in one ball. And, and we saw the problem with uh, Wilson Raybould uh, to some degree, and and we're seeing it here where uh, you know there's just uh, there's the checks and balances that one would hope are are simply not there. Um, so it, it it is a problem, and and of course with all these rookie MPs MPPs in in Queens Park, they're 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 susceptible to this kind of bullying. Uh, it just bothers me to think of the Carolyn Mulroney's and uh, Christine Elliott's. I hope they're not being subjected to this kind of schoolyard uh, stuff. But 
you know, uh, it's difficult to watch. But there's a pattern developing here, and even with some of the names we've just mentioned over the last number of administrations, uh, is, is it fair to say that the chief of staff, who is an unelected official, uh, wields too much power? Well, I think I think what we're looking at with French, because if you look at some of these articles that have been written, now of course nobody comes on the record other than Randy Hillier, but uh, in in the case of uh, Radwanski's column, uh, he he says he's talked to twenty MPPs, uh, all of whom uh, would only speak uh, on a not for attribution basis. But uh, it, he's not just getting one disgruntled individual; he's getting uh, a broad section. So. Uh, on the surface, I mean, uh, you know, you got Dean French picking up the phone, calling the OPP, and telling him to raid uh, the pot store, uh, the illegal pot shops. Which, you know, it's fine to. Uh, I don't mind the idea of raiding them either. But what the hell is the uh, chief of staff of the premier doing, phoning up the OPP and giving direct orders? And what are they doing, obeying those orders? Well, and it raises the question, and I know that the, there's some whispers around Queen's Park, as there has been in other halls of government, too. When you see this, uh, and, and you can go all the way back, maybe in one of the worst-case scenarios was Haldeman and Ehrlichman back in the Nixon White House. Uh, some people in, on the staff, and quite frankly, I guess some of the, uh, the the other members of elected bodies, are saying, well, who's really running the show here? Is it going to be the president in that case, or the premier, or is it the chief of staff? Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, realistically, the Premier does have to delegate a certain amount of this uh, if, if he's going to be effective doing his job. But I don't think the Premier can uh, can afford to look like he's powerless. Uh, you know, it's like creating a Frankenstein monster. It's one thing to delegate authority to a trusted aide, but it's quite another thing to um, almost seem to be being pushed around by uh, your, your uh, chief of staff. Uh, Hillier, uh, yesterday, uh, the, the one thing that, that really jumped off the interview for me was he said he had a meeting with Ford after he had been kicked out of caucus. And he quoted Ford, and, and I guess they had a fairly cordial discussion, and, and, and then Ford said, I'm going to go to bat for you. So here's the boss, uh, supposedly the supreme uh, boss, telling uh, Hillier that, that he's going to go to bat for him, which suggests that Ford can't give the order. He has to go and persuade or uh, almost uh, beg uh, French to uh, consider allowing Hillier back in caucus. If that's true, that's, uh, you know, it's gone way too far, I would say. Well, you know, there's discontent within the caucus. We get that. And obviously when, when things like this happen, and people like Randy Hillier speak out, but uh, uh, anybody who's looking for any further cracks in the caucus, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, it's not unusual for a guy like Randy Hillier to start to voice his displeasure about something like this. But this, this opportunity usually just uh, is when the, the, the leader, in this case the premier, usually closes ranks and just say, look, at, uh, nobody speaks out anymore, uh, and we, which really kind of, you know, contradicts what just about everybody who's running for office says that I'm going to give everybody in the caucus more power, more opportunity to speak freely. Uh, according to what Hillier is saying, not really. No, and, and, and that's the other thing. Just speaking of caucus, uh, these caucus meetings, and, and the caucus meetings occur, I don't know, weekly or whatever, but basically all the ordinary members are there, the premier is there, and and the purpose of those meetings and the reason why you have confidentiality is that members are free to get things off their chest. They can say whatever they want. Uh, it's a it's a closed meeting, 
and and you, you you know you get a frank exchange of views and that that that's what caucus is supposed to be about at the federal and provincial level but in again uh when you go into uh one of these caucus meetings at Queens Park the guy at the head of the table is not the premier it's french and when somebody dares to speak out uh, uh forcefully and uh, and there there's a description of a screaming match with Paul Calandra who you'll recall was a federal uh, MP uh, in the Harper government, and he was a, a bit of a spokesperson, frankly, a, a bit of a mouthpiece for for Harper during the the election campaign. So Calandra is now uh, a, a conservative MPP, and apparently it, it descended into just a screaming match between him and and uh, French. And again, what the chief, of the, the premier's chief of staff at a at a typical caucus meeting is not sitting at the head of the table. He's sitting along the sidelines taking notes, and the give and take is directly with the premier, not so apparently with uh, this current government. And that's that's disturbing because it it really reduces members to, um, you know, I mean, as Trudeau senior once said, you know, they're nobodies when they're you know, uh, 10 feet away from Parliament Hill. But, I mean, what is the role of a backbench MP if if they can't even get it off their chest in a caucus meeting once a week? Uh, it's, you know, it, it really is a got to be a demoralizing circumstance. It's an interesting dynamic, to be sure. John, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate the input. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.